Come on in to Open House with Sharon Caddy. It's more than just buying and selling. It's decor, lifestyle, family, tips, advice, and so much more. Open House with Sharon Caddy. Hello, once again, another episode of Open House for you. And I was starting to think to myself, what are the many reasons that people decide to sell a home, buy a home? People decide to move, even rent a different home. Um, could be, well, these days it could be because they're going to get a lot of money for their home and they want to take some cash. Uh, can't really fault you for that. Um, some people decide it's time to move up from the starter home. Maybe you're in a big home and you decide it's time to downsize a little bit. Um, and for some, and these days more often than not, um, there's people going through divorce. And if you've ever gone through a divorce where there's a home that's part of the, uh, the assets of the marriage I have, it's a difficult process. Um, it's one where you do need to know some things. You don't want to go in without knowing what's going to be, what you're going to be facing, what you do have to deal with. And really to know what you have to deal with, it's really good to consult someone who knows. And that's why today I'm joined by AJ Ripnarine, who's with Aero Law. Uh, AJ, great to have you along today. Thank you very much, Sharon. Pleasure to be here. So, I mean, I know from just reading a lot of articles, there's a lot of talk that, and I guess it's from being cooped up, if you don't have the greatest relationship to begin with, um, divorce is, is really playing a factor in some of the uh, the home sales we're seeing these days. Absolutely. Um, I'd say one thing this pandemic has done for sure is raise the pressure on uh, people who may have already been in somewhat of a fractious relationship with their spouse. Um, so yeah, we are seeing a lot of an uptick in divorce rates based on uh, resulting from the pandemic. And you're in a situation where you're you're there to help these people, but it's, that's got to be a tense situation depending on every divorce story is different. Some are very amicable, some are the furthest thing possible from that. So let's just talk about though the, the circumstances within that divorce scenario that affect um, your matrimonial home, your home uh, and the division of the assets, which is just such a big part of the process. And I wanna start though with just sort of a definition for anybody who's listening, watching, what is the matrimonial home? Sure, that's, that's a great question and a great place to start. Um, yeah, so the matrimonial home is defined in Ontario's Family Law Act. Um, and in essence, the definition is that it is every property um, within which the um, married parties ordinarily resided as their family residence at the time of separation. Um, so as you can hear there, there's an implication that there can be more than one matrimonial home. Um, however, for most people, there's typically just the one, and uh, it's it's the home where they live together and uh, carried out their everyday lives. So now you did sort of mention if, if a family has more than one home, perhaps a family who has a home where they live during most of the year, and then they have a summer home where they reside during the summer. Can that be also considered a matrimonial home? Uh, yeah, it, it can. Again, it does depend on the... Um, evidence um, of that habitual residence there during this, the off seasons. Um, but it can be uh, characterized uh, as a matrimonial home, certainly. Okay. Now, before I move on to the actual details of the splitting sure. that up, um, yeah. what if you have a couple who is common law as opposed to legally married? Is Does any of what we're going to talk about today apply to them? Um, well, some some of it 
does, yes, um, in terms of division based on ownership um, and other aspects, um, it, it doesn't. So, so one of the main distinctions between married persons and common law persons is that the former, being married persons, have an automatic right to property division um, secured under the Divorce Act and the Ontario Family Law Act. Whereas the latter, the common law partners, unfortunately, they have to do a little more work to establish mm-hmm. their rights. Okay. So with it, whether it's the matrimonial home or really anything else within the bounds of the marriage, I guess the number one thing that has to be established and firm is the date of separation. So what does that really mean? And, and going from just establishing it, why do you have to establish it? And how does it go out from there? Right. Okay. Um, Right. So the date of separation is really it's the date on which one of the two spouses has communicated to the other that the relationship is over without any prospect of reconciliation. Um, So it's really a hard demarcation from, um, you know, being in love and and being married and living together and doing things um, as a couple and uh, shifting over to a, it's, it's even a mindset of, of just shifting mentally. You're now separated and you're not doing things together. Um, now, it is important as well when it comes to equalization of net family property. Um, so there are two points in time that are important there, your date of marriage and your date of separation. Um, and really what you're doing is you're, you're required to share the increase in value of marriage matrimony or matrimonial or family property between those two points in time. And anything after that is not necessarily subject to equalization or sharing. Okay. So, right. So I hope I answered the question there, yeah, but if absolutely. there's anything else, I that okay, sure. So in the, in, well, anytime really, but in the current circumstances, um, right. sometimes it can be really hard for one spouse, if you decided to call it quits amicably or otherwise, it can be right. really hard for one spouse to find another place to go right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, can a couple be legally separated, still living under the same roof? Yes, absolutely. So it is a practical solution um, for many people who you know really can't afford to vacate the matrimonial home and go off and rent, pardon me, lease a new residence or even purchase a new house. So um, the law does allow for parties to remain under the same roof in the matrimonial home, but um, live and live separate and apart. So that really does mean that the the parties have to um, cease communal activities as much as possible. So Surely it means not sleeping in the same bedroom anymore. Um, it does mean um, not eating meals together anymore, not holding themselves out as, as a married couple anymore. And uh, of course, not having sexual relations anymore. And that separation is for the term of a year, right? Exactly. Yeah. So in, in law, um, once the one of the two parties communicates the relationship is over, that's your date of separation. So that's your, your starting point of what's known as the one-year cooling off period. So in order to be eligible to apply to the courts for to obtain a, a divorce order, um, you have to, if you're, if you're separating, if you're divorcing rather, on the basis of separation, you have to wait at least that one-year period from your date of separation um, up until the following calendar year is when you, you can apply. So what if though during, let's say you're 11 months in and you have, you're chatting things over, you're talking about stuff and on a drunken Friday, yeah, kind of go at it. 
Sure. Does the clock reset or is there some kind of like, I don't know, leeway for, okay, didn't really mean for that to happen? Right. No, that's a great question. And um, of course, those things happen. And uh, so the Divorce Act, one of its um, principles really is to encourage reconciliation of married parties who are um, ongoing or, or going through the separation process, but may have those exact moments you just described there. So as long as there's uh, a re-cohabitation or reconciliation for less than 90 days, it does not affect the the separation cooling off period if if of course then cohabitation is resumed for longer than 90 days it does then cause a reset okay so if now during this one year separation in your opinion is it is it this the wisest time to actually look at i um, mean you must be going through all of your assets and your bank accounts and your retirement funds and of course your home is it best to look at divesting yourself of the matrimonial home during the separation period or after divorce um, so that's a great point as well. And I think um, that touches on something I wanted to discuss in this area, which is um, it's important to consider severing the joint tenancy at the outset of your separation. So I, I know many people, most spouses hold property to the matrimony home as joint tenants. So that means they're both registered on title to the property. And um, there is a distinction between joint tenancy and the other way to own property with someone else is called tenants in common. Um, so what I like to recommend to my clients is that they consider severing the joint tenancy at the outset. So that means that if one of those two spouses is to you know, pass away prior to achieving final resolution of the family law issues, well, the way joint tenancy works is the surviving tenant, uh, by way of the right of survivorship, assumes the entire interest in the property, which means the deceased spouse does not have that share anymore in their estate. So if they have a will in place, well, they the it, it won't be instructive over that share anymore as it's now left their estate and is now part of the surviving tenant. So it's a great way to sort of protect against um, losing your share in the matrimonial home. So, so I would uh, recommend that as a starting point. And I, I think you wanted to know just whether or not you should be looking to sell the home during separation or mm -hmm. waiting until there's a divorce, right? So um, yeah, I think, um, again, it kind of comes down to the agreeableness of the parties. So if they can be, if they are, amicable with one another and they're able to um, work together to a common goal, uh, most often parties decide to sell the matrimony home because they're both seeking a fresh start. And that's kind of the easiest way to uh, deal with it. And you can do so um, during separation or after as long as you're agreeable. But if it's a little right. more contentious, as, as some of these cases can be, right? Um, well, I, I would recommend not rushing to sell the home because there will be some groundwork that goes into establishing its fair market value. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where um, parties may seek to employ a real estate agent, uh, you know, to obtain a letter of opinion of market value for the home if there's disagreement. Um, and that will help kind of uh, close the gap in, in the, the value of the home. So, so really the short answer, I know that was a long winded one, but uh, <laughs> the short answer is um, yeah, it, it, if it's contentious, probably best to until you wait until the, the divorce order is is granted mm -hmm. can it how do i even word this one uh, 
sometimes in the more contentious divorces, I mean, there's people are trying to destroy each other, even at their own detriment. Mm-hmm. Um, if in a maybe there's a circumstance where okay, there's no way these two are going to stay under the same roof during the the separation. So the one spouse is out, the other one is staying within the house, and the spouse staying within the house is doing their very best to make that house as unsellable as possible. Is there anything that can be done during a, a time like this? I mean, what would you recommend to someone bringing in some kind of professional counseling or something? Because in the end, both lose. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's a good idea as well. What you just mentioned, there is professional counseling and that uh, kind of um, can be something employed during a, a collaborative practice. Um, so say that's that's a whole different way of uh, dealing with the matter altogether. Um, so if say parties are in the collaborative practice um, mechanism, which is it's an alternative dispute resolution process. So if parties are going in that direction, then they're keeping their matter out of court and they're using the services of things like uh, people like family professionals, social workers and financial professionals as well. So hopefully they could possibly weigh in and maybe encourage the parties to to be a little more civil and dividing um, in, in in arranging the sale of the home. However, if that's not the case, I think your question is more pointed toward a contentious kind of matter. And if that's the case, usually litigation is your answer. So um, the party seeking to sell the home uh, would likely be seeking a court order from a family court judge for partition, um, yeah, under the Partition Act for sale of the home and subsequent division of the sale proceeds. Now that, that approach though, it does require the litigant seeking sale of the home to also um, obtain a court order under the Family Law Act dispensing with spousal consent. Right. Um, now, if, if the person who's residing in the home, I, and this is something that came to mind the other day, I don't know anyone who's actually done this, but if the person residing in the home is of the mind that, well, one of the options out there is to buy out the other spouse and, and re- retain ownership of the home by buying out the other spouse. So during the time that they're living in the house during separation before the house, before they deal with this, if they're if they're inflicting damage upon the home that would actually degrade the value of the home. So saying, I don't have to pay you that much because Mm -hmm. the house isn't worth that much. Now, is there anything that can be done legally where, you know, if it's an intentional act to decrease the value of the home, is there anything that can be done during, you know, is it still a 50, 50 split or can, can it be weighed out differently based on actions? Yeah, uh, that's yeah. That that's the really the solution for that is is again it's seeking a court order um, to have uh, judicial intervention. Really, so you're you're going to be seeking um, a court order to prevent the or prohibit the further depletion of family assets being done in sort of a reckless uh, kind of manner. Um, so that's that's one way that you can go about preserving um, the family um, or, or sorry the equity in the asset. Okay. Um, now, the during the process, during the, the time of separation, I mean, that maybe one person's living in the home, maybe two, but say there's one, um, the mortgage still has to be paid, the insurance still has to be paid, the utilities still have to be paid. Um, what happens if one spouse decides, I'm not living in the house? I don't want to pay for it. Right. Um, well, that's... Um... That happens often. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you'll have where one house uh, or sorry, one spouse leaves the matrimonial home. Um, 
and uh, just really kind of shirks their uh, responsibilities of, uh, you know, carrying uh, the carrying costs for the property. So if that does happen, um, typically the what we recommend is that the spouse who's continuing to reside in the matrimony home keep detailed records of all of their expenses and all of the household expenses that they've been forced to carry on their own um, because what they can be entitled to seek against the spouse who has left the house is uh, post-separation adjustments for all of those expenses. Fair enough. That's good. That's good. Um, I, I have known many people where there's been a family inheritance along the line and Let's look at it from two aspects. First of all, if there's a family inheritance, um, say it's one spouse's father passed away and left money, mm -hmm. is that something that has to be split? And what if that money was used to pay down the mortgage? Right. So uh, when it comes to gifts or inheritances, uh, there are two sort of main points of consideration. One is the the time, the point in time at which the gift or inheritance is received. So if it's, for instance, prior to the date of marriage, so before they got married, um, then that's typically excluded from the recipient's um, net family property. Now, if the gift or inheritance is received during the marriage, that's where it becomes a little more contentious, of course. So if it's received during the marriage, then we need to really establish the intention of the donor. So it, it really boils down to that. So if the donor being um, the, the father of one of the spouses or, or um, something like that, they, they must clearly indicate that the gift is intended on being the exclusive property of only the recipient. If that's the case, then it just then turns into a matter of traceability. So if the monies were then received by one of the spouses and there's clear evidence that it was intended to be the exclusive property of only that recipient spouse and that recipient spouse turns out to do something benevolent, such as paying down the mortgage for the benefit of both spouses, as long as um, during separation that that money that mortgage pay down can be traced back to that inheritance fund, those inheritance funds, then it can be deducted from that uh, recipient spouse's net family property. So what I'm getting from a lot of the different things we're discussing is it's really important once you, once the decision is made that the clear end game is, is a divorce, um, keeping paper trail, keeping a paper trail, keeping notes, keeping all kinds of things there. That's really important, isn't it? It is. It really is. It does. Because uh, many times there are instances where it just comes down to who has the better evidence available to to prove or disprove an expense um, or, or claim. So really, it's uh, it is best to have well-documented expenses when it comes to household expenses, um, even things like Section 7, special and extraordinary expenses for children's extracurricular activities or dental, dental bills, things of that nature. These are all things that will be factored in the process of dividing uh, family property. So it, is, it, it really is doing yourself a service by keeping well-documented notes. And that, But for, I know for a lot of people, that can be kind of a new thing. Um, is this something that when someone comes to see you, they can sit down and discuss like, what do I need to do? Or can they ask for advice on how to even set something like that up or how to keep files? Sure. Yeah, certainly. That is something that we do often uh, recommend and advise our clients on is on how to start keeping um, detailed records of their expenses. And um <clears throat> And uh, yeah, just, just so that, and then, sorry, another thing that we do also mention, it was just escaping me for a moment, yeah. it just came back to me, which is that we often do just start off with uh, um, 
advising that it's best not to destabilize the status quo or, or deviate from it. So if uh, I know while emotions and tensions may be high, you may be inclined to want to do something perhaps vindictive, like um, canceling the other party's credit card. If you, if mm-hmm. you're the, the account holder in control of like their supplemental card, for example, or, or doing things to exclude their access to joint bank accounts. Um, we recommend not doing any of those um, things or taking those steps because ultimately if the matter does end up in court, you do want to really show that you have been as cooperative and civil as possible. So we, we usually advise parties to, while we tell them how, um, advise them on how to document, we also main t- advise them to maintain the status quo as, as, as far as expenses are concerned. Um, another fear I know some people have is, what if my spouse sells the house out from under me? I know that can't happen, but there are safeguards in place, right? Absolutely, yeah. Spousal consent is the main one. Um, so it's uh, really, we're, we're sort of talking about a situation here where one of the spouses are registered on title to the property and the other isn't. Because if it was the other situation where they're both on title, um, well, I mean, they both need to be signatories on the closing documents. So there's not much of a risk of um, a sort of surreptitious sale in that instance. But so it's where we're talking about one spouse is on title, the other is off title. So in that instance, the real estate lawyers who's representing the spouse seeking to say sell secretly, um, they will be uh, required to obtain or ensure that that party provides spousal consent from the off-title spouse. And in most cases, the real estate lawyer will go one step further and uh, contact the off-title spouse and require them to obtain a certificate of independent legal advice from a separate lawyer uh, who would ensure that that spouse is in fact consenting to the transaction and understands the impact on their matrimonial rights. Yeah, people really need to understand that there are these safeguards in place because everybody gets really suspicious and and, and a bit nervous about when things are happening. Um, Another question that has come up from time to time is people asking, well, okay, so we we sold the matrimonial home. I don't know when this divorce is going to be final. If I go and buy another home on my own, is my ex going to have any right to that property. So what happens if you're still in the middle of a separation and this can take years sometimes before people actually get their final divorce. Does that ex-spouse have any right to the property that the other spouse has purchased? Right. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. These things can be very protracted legal battles uh, that last for a long time. But of course, people in the, in the interim would like to move on with their lives and uh, repurchase. And that's there's really no problem with that, provided that the date of separation is clearly established. So if there is and there are in some cases parties where they vehemently disagree over this date of separation for one reason or the other um so if as as long as um the date of separation is clearly established both parties have agreed um then you can go on the party seeking to obtain a new property and move on can do so post date of separation without having to uh, share or equalize that property. So again, you know, as we mentioned earlier, that's really a clear line in the sand of um, dividing um, the the assets or from separating really the the time in which you are required to share things and then the time in which things uh, are your exclusive property. So, so really it's, it's imperative that that date of separation be clearly established. 
That's so important for people to know though, because uh, regardless of whether things are, are quick and clear and done or whether a separation lasts for a long time, everybody comes to that point where they're ready to, to move on to the next chapter of life and you don't want to be held back. So it's nice to know that you can go on and purchase a property at that yeah, point. Absolutely. So for people that have decided that, you know what, this is just a not working and we're going to be moving on. First steps really is to, to, uh, to get some counsel, right? Absolutely. Yes. Um, well, marriage counseling, of course, if it hadn't already been considered by the parties, is, is usually a good place to start. Um, and uh, you'll find that parties will find that most family lawyers will usually recommend that at the outset, even during a consultation as well as we're actually we're legally required to uh, make that recommendation under the Divorce Act. But yeah, counseling is certainly one of the best things to consider. And then if that just quite frankly isn't an option, it's just not going to work. Um, then really starting the process early by contacting a family law lawyer is a great decision because even if you're not ready to necessarily retain the lawyer, at least you're kind of preparing yourself and, and you can then kind of help um, govern your, your uh, actions accordingly and you can prepare for this transition and um, know your rights and obligations really. And uh, as mentioned, I made reference to it earlier in our conversation, but there's there's a whole new process. Um, well, I suppose it's not that new, but it's still relatively new. Um, it's called uh, collaborative practice, and it's it's an alternative way to resolve matters. So there, the, the two main ways traditionally has been, you know, you try to work it out um, civilly, and you try to achieve a separation agreement, um, use you know, with or without legal representation. Now, if that doesn't work because there's just a breakdown in negotiations and there's just an unwillingness to, to uh, I guess, compromise on certain issues, then, well, the next step traditionally has been going to court um, and starting an application for divorce and going through that process, which can take um, upwards of, you know, one to two years. Mm -hmm. um, however, the other alternative this is, is collaborative practice where the matter is resolved civilly outside of court. The goal is to obtain a separation agreement, but you you involve other kinds of professionals who may be of, who are of tremendous value and assistance to the process. And these parties remain neutral. They're not partial to either one party over the other. So it would still look as though each party is there with their legal representative, but now you have someone, you know, who is the neutral financial represent, uh, professional or the neutral family professional available to provide services to both parties. And at the end of the day, um, reports show that it can be more effective and efficient in, in dealing with the separation process. Excellent. So before I let you go, just wanted to quickly talk about uh, you and you are a lawyer with Arrow Law. Tell us a little bit about yes. your uh, fields of law. Sure. Um, so Arrow Law um, is my law firm that I co-own with my partner. And we have two offices, one in Whitby and one in, uh, in North York at Young and Shepherd. And uh, our core practice areas are um, real estate law, immigration law, family law, and wills and estates. And um, we are a dynamic law firm. We try to do things as, uh, try to make things as convenient as possible on our clients um, in terms of um, say, if we can do remote appointments, um, I guess in this uh, pandemic climate, yeah. um, we're, we're more and more of us are getting used to schedule personal appointments and arrange for electronic execution of documents so so again really what's imperative is uh the 
keeping a little distance right now from one another. So we try to do things as, uh, as conveniently as possible. And um, we've kind of garnered some great reviews so far since uh, we've uh, been in business. So I, I think it'd be, yeah, I encourage anyone to, to contact us and give us a try. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me today. Um, we're going to have AJ's uh, and Arrow Law's information up wherever you're accessing this podcast, be it on a podcast platform or on YouTube. Just take a look at the description for links and you can reach out to AJ uh, if you'd like more information or to uh, get a hold of him for his services. Again, thank you for joining me today. All the best. Stay My safe. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. And for everyone uh, watching, listening, remember to share, like, subscribe to the YouTube channel and uh, join me again next time. Uh, it's a pleasure having you along. This is Open House with Sharon Caddy. See you next time. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. For all our episodes, click to SharonCaddy.com. Open House with Sharon Caddy is produced with Aflalo Communications, Inc. Till next time.